0: Between a new generation of stylists, lifestyle changes, social media taking over our lives and clients demanding more of an experience, salon owners are often left wondering what the heck is next can feel like you're a soldier going out to battle, putting out fire after fire with our team. Then when you finally get home from the salon instead of switching off, have to spend your limited time looking for new team members, creating short, entertaining videos to keep your brand relevant, brainstorming new ways to provide a seamless client experience. It's no wonder that salon owners end up burnt out and overwhelmed. It's a battlefield. How can you navigate your ever-changing team, clientele, social media landscape? Now if there's anyone who knows how to tackle and navigate this generation of stylists, it's Eric Taylor. Now, with 18 years in the industry, Eric is the founder and CEO of Salon Republic, and he sits on the industry board in California. Today, Eric is going to share with you his entrepreneurial secrets to running a profitable salon business and managing the highs and lows of the industry, especially when it comes to your team. So let's dive in and let's hear Eric's story. Eric, thank you for joining me on the Salon Owners Collective Podcast. Very pleased to have you
1: here. Hi, Larissa. How are you? Thanks for having me. Pleasure is mine.
0: Good. I'm looking forward to our chat. But let's start with Eric. Where are you in the world? What do you do? How did you get to be doing this? Tell us your story.
1: I am in the lovely city of Los Angeles, California, right now. Looking outside, it's sunny and a little toasty. Where this is summertime, and uh, my office uh, is is here. This is where I spend most of my time. I also live here, of course. Uh, but uh, backing up to give you. Uh, kind of my origin story. I'm, I'm from Dallas, Texas, and grew up there, the son of an artist, an oil painter mom, and a business person dad. Uh, my, my dad was in the real estate business, had a had a small kind of single operator real estate business. And I grew up in this household uh, with two very different uh, influences, in my mom and my dad. And I think that uh, that that was the same influences that my brother had. My brother is older and he kind of, um, he was driven to combine the artistry and the kind of the practicality of business in the same way that I was. Um, But his answer was to become an architect. And he did that about four years before I got off into the world after college. And uh, my answer to combining the artistry and the, and the pragmatic nature of business was to get into a business like the hair salon business. And so I, my, my story about how I found the hair salon business is kind of interesting. I was, um, I was soon to graduate from college. I didn't want to get a job somewhere. I wanted to go and create something and do something new, kind of how my mom works for herself and my dad works for himself. And so I kind of wanted to work for myself. And uh, I went off to try to find something that I was interested in. And um, the first kind of introduction to the industry was when uh, my girlfriend at the time, her hairdresser moved to a studio-based salon in Dallas. And uh, she went and she got her hair cut for the first time in the salon. And she got home and she called me and she said, you got to check this place out. It's amazing. It's a different kind of salon. And, you know, I, I loved it and you should, you should check it out. It was five minutes from my parents' house. And so I jumped in the car. I drove down there and I walked in the salon. It was a large salon, about 10,000 square feet. I had about 50 studios in there, each occupied by a beauty professional. And the founder of the concept, uh, who's a barber, um, was there. And I told him that I wanted to get my hair cut and He walked me around the salon and I said, well, this is really an amazing place. And uh, none of the hairdressers could take me at the at the moment. So I stood with him and talked to him for about two hours. And at the end of the conversation, I said, look, I love your business. I just graduated from college. I would love to just kind of hang around. I'll work for you. You don't have to pay me because I know I'm not going to be of much value. I'm going to be learning more from you than I'm going to be giving you and Value as an employee, so if you don't mind, I'll just hang around and help. And he said, "Sure." And so I spent a year doing that while living at home for free. And during that year, I learned the salon business. I learned, um, I learned what makes hairdressers happy. I learned what makes clients happy. And uh, I, I basically said, "This is this is the the place for me. It's a perfect combination of art and." Um, kind of the necessity of, of business kind of like what I got from my dad. And so I uh I said thank you very much mentor uh, I'm I'm not going to compete with you I'd like to put up a salon but I'm going to move and so I moved from Dallas to Los Angeles and I put up my first salon uh, salon republic is the name of my business and I put up the first salon in Studio City California just a suburb north of Los Angeles in 2000. And so uh, you want me to keep going? Yeah, this is, uh,
0: uh, absolutely. Yes, please take us S- to today. That
1: would be great. Sure. So I opened that salon December 1st, 2000, and I was the only employee for, you know, the first three years. It was a an 8,000 square foot salon, and I had taken everything that I learned from my mentor and working for him, and, um, you know, tweaked it a little bit to my personality, tweaked it a little bit to... The nuances that I saw, uh, primarily in regards to, you know, what would help the success of the beauty professionals inside the salon, and uh, so uh, I—that's I, what I built. Eight thousand feet, about forty studios in there. Some of the studios are larger, so there we had teams of people working within uh, the larger studios. Some of the studios are, you know, about a hundred. 20 square feet or so, and, um, occupied by single hairdressers. And I, um, I didn't have a lot of money to, to build it. So I laid the floor myself, uh, built the cabinets, hung the cabinets myself, uh, for many years until I was able to, you know, get a, get enough, enough money to get professionals to actually do that kind of stuff for me. Uh, I did the janitorial myself. I cleaned the toilets, you know, I vacuumed the, the hallways and all the other things that you have to do when you're starting a business and you want to make it successful. Um, nothing was above me uh, then. And frankly, nothing is above me now, 22 years later. Um, the, the goal was then and the goal is now the, um, the happiness and success of our beauty professionals. And we, we try to do that by offering them the best possible uh, working environment. And so if that means me, um, bending down and picking up a little piece of trash that nobody else noticed, you know, on the ground, then that's what happens. And that happens every time I'm in the salon. I so the, those were the early days. So to take you to now, um, I let's see three years after I opened that first salon, I hired my first employee to run the salon at the front desk. And uh, she was actually a girlfriend, which was a bad decision. Like, there are many, many bad decisions that I made in those early years and uh, but maybe they were good because I learned from them right this is this is the reality of of going through life as many of our mistakes are things that that we that we learn from and then we we use for the rest of our lives to, to avoid uh, future mistakes and so um, I will never hire another girlfriend and so she she worked for me for a period of time and um, and then I, I professionalized the operation a little bit. And so, uh, uh, I went off and, and opened up my second location and then, uh, a number of years after that, I opened my third and fourth. And, uh, by about 2012, I had, uh, I believe about five locations. And then from 2012 to where we are now, 2022, uh, we've grown to 24 locations with 2,500 beauty professionals in four states, and so this office that I'm talking from right now is in Woodland Hills, California, just north of Los Angeles, kind of a um, you know satellite suburb of Los Angeles, and we've got about 60 employees, uh, some based here in the office, mostly based out in the in the salons, and uh, but we manage from this location and uh, we do our thing. I
0: love it. Uh- that's really, really great. Um, one of the things I wanted to discuss is, you know, how things have changed, particularly in the last three years. What's your perspective on um, business prior to, um, to uh, I guess, 2019, before mm-hmm. to today? Like what's changed for you in particular? And what's your experience of, of how the industry has shifted?
1: Well, um, What's changed for me is, um, you, you know, look, the, the COVID period was horrible, of course, um, for all salon owners everywhere. We, as, as salon managers, had to contend with uh, Gavin Newsom here in California, our, our illustrious governor, who doesn't like our industry. Uh, I think it's been well documented. He, with, with zero proof, blamed. A nail salon for having been the initial um, point of contact or, or, or maybe gateway for coronavirus into the population. He blamed a, a nail salon, and of course, there's it's impossible for him to have known that, and it was stupid for him to say. But um, but he said it, and uh, and he said a series of other stupid things since then that uh, that tended to blame our industry, and and I think he found our industry easy to blame because we're relatively unrepresented versus so many other industries that are unionized and, and constituents of his around. So um, the, we were closed here in California uh, longer than any other state in the United States. We were closed for a total of about 10 or 11 months, if you include the, the facialists um salons were were closed for about 6 weeks less than than that um in aggregate over over the covid period the um organization called the professional beauty federation of california sued uh governor newsom in spring of kind of early summer in 2020 to reopen salons and um the day that Governor Newsom's response was due in court to that lawsuit uh, the morning of, he reopened salons. And that was not covered anywhere in the media. And it was, of course, not, uh, not a coincidence at all. Um, or, 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 or it was not unrelated, it was entirely related. Sure. Um, and then the second time that he, and then he closed down salons, by the way, about a month later, when a judge had had indicated that he would have ruled in favor of, of the state of California, so he he then closed down salons again. He and then his aunt uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi got caught in a hair salon in San Francisco, and a week later he reopened salons again. <laughs> completely, completely related. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure you were aware of that, even across the pond
0: yeah I, I, a few little trickles came through
1: for sure. Yes. Yeah. and then he shut us down again in early December of 2020 and um, and and by that time, I had become a a loud voice within the industry. Um, i I think I was maybe a little bit of a reluctant leader up to that point. Um, you know I, I I'm not sure I really embraced the notion that I was a leader in the industry, Um, but Salon Republic had gotten to the point where we had a lot of hairdressers, we had a lot of very high-profile hairdressers, um, a lot of worldwide educators, a lot of, um, you know, insta-famous, if you will, uh, influencers, so on and so forth in our salons, and so our exposure was, was relatively large, and so um, that kind of made me a, a de facto leader. Uh, and then when the COVID thing happened, um, very few companies, if any, frankly, were complaining that uh, the salons were shut down. The large companies, you know, whether it's the, the large you know, employed chains, you know, sport clips and great clips and super cuts and places like this. They, they were mum during the entire process. They were afraid of engaging on a, on a political level um, on a large scale. They were afraid of any backlash that would happen. And, um, you know, th- this is one of the things that we saw um, around the world is that the larger companies were unwilling to stick their necks out in many cases for fear of what would happen to them. Um, a lot of CEOs just buried their head. So I, I went out and I bought a bullhorn. And I went out, I organized protests on the streets of Los Angeles. We did, I think three protests and I was encouraging and helping others to do other protests in other parts of the state and uh, along with others, Uh, don't get me wrong. I wasn't the only one by any means, there are lots of us. And so we were really encouraging each other to get out there and make some noise and and let the state know that not only are salons uh, safe, uh, in, in terms of cross infection of COVID, uh, when certain measures are taken in uh, and, and done. Um, but the, the data proved that we were safe because many, many states by this point were operating very, very sa- safely. The CDC had actually done a report on how safe we were. Uh, but the governor continued to use us as an example of what, of him quote unquote, doing something about COVID. Without bearing the brunt of of pissing off his constituencies um, and closing closing their businesses like retail and and so on and so forth, so um, yelling and screaming on the streets, and then he shut us down a third time. And I, um, over the course of about four weeks, I spearheaded a lawsuit with two very politically connected attorneys, one on the left and one on the right. And um, I I got some financial help. I wrote a big check and I got some financial help from a couple other big um, players in the industry, John Paul DeGioria and Dermalogica's founders. And together we funded this lawsuit and filed the lawsuit on January 22nd, which was a Friday. And Governor Newsom opened up hair salons the next business day, Monday, January 25th. And of course, none of this was covered in the media. And um, when he referenced why then, because the, the media was, was uh, caught off guard is the term that they used, um, because he hadn't indicated that he was going to do anything. Of course not, uh, because he didn't know he was going to get sued uh, on the 22nd. Um, he came out and he said, oh, well, the, the data and science has changed. So, you know, over the weekend, the data and science changed. And now it's OK for hair salons to operate. So, of course, we opened up on the 25th. And uh, we've been operating very safely ever since, just like every other hair salon in the world. So um, our period during that, when I say our, you know, Salon Republic, my, as the owner, um, it was, it was a, it was a horrible experience. Uh, I was essentially forced to become certain things that I I never thought I would be protesting on the streets of Los Angeles for something as, as stupid as just a hair salon being able to be open. Um, but a lot of us kind of became, you know, activists against the state of California for a long period of time. And, um, you know, we credited rent to all of our beauty, to all all of our thousands of beauty professionals during that entire period of time. And, um, and then we got back to work once we were reopened. And so we reopened with not a lot of beauty professionals and then worked hard towards, you know, making sure that our salons were operating tip top and, um, you know, going back to trying to be the most attractive uh, place to work for the beauty professionals of California. And so that's what we did through 2021. Now, what changed for the beauty professionals? I think a lot changed in terms of, you know, the, the broader culture and the culture within our industry. I think um, broader culture um, it's well covered that there's been a, um, there's been a, uh, you know, a resignation. Uh, what is it called? The great resignation, right? where, uh, people think to the people essentially were working at home or laid off or not working, but lucky enough to still get a paycheck, um, while they were sitting at home doing whatever, right. Playing video, video games or, you know, spending more time with their children or spending more time with their families or, you know, you name it or traveling. Um, and when it was time to go back to work, a lot of people were like, well, I don't really feel the same way about work as I did before the pandemic, you know, before the pandemic, we have what is often referred to as hustle culture, Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, ambition. And I'm going to put that extra effort in and, you know, and everybody has their own variation of that. Right. But this is, this is definitely something that was in the, in the culture before. And, um, and then through this kind of lull of 2020, you know, through the COVID period, um, the, you, you literally couldn't do it. You couldn't hustle. Um, it was illegal to hustle, right? Almost. Um, and a lot of our incentive to work hard and be productive was taken away because people started getting checks from the government. You know, we started in California. We got a lot. Uh, everyone in the U S got a lot. I know you guys in the UK got some, a lot, Um, and, uh, depending on where you were in the, in the, in the United States, you know, you, you got varying degrees of free money. And so the combination of not being able to work and getting free money, uh, does something pernicious, I believe to one's, um, incentive to be productive. And, and so what, what we got coming out of it was a lot of people who didn't wanna work. And uh, they had the luxury of not working because they had extra money in their bank accounts. I mean, you know, many of our people and many friends that I know um, have never had that much money in their bank accounts in terms of savings, right? Because they had not been going out to eat and they had nowhere not been-
0: the money.
1: <laughs> yeah, there was nowhere yeah. to spend the money um, other than, you know, Netflix and Amazon. And you could, you could only spend so much there. And, uh, and alcohol, certainly the alcohol industry did pretty well for, um, you know, off offsite sales, but, uh, long and short of it is I, I think the hustle culture that existed pre uh, pandemic had turned into a, what should I call it? Maybe euphemistically work-life balance you know, right? Work-life balance. And so, and, and just kind of like hustle culture is very subjective to each individual. So is work-life balance. So some people consider, you know, the very positive sounding thing of work-life balance as being, I'm going to do whatever I want 90% of the time, and I'm going to work 10% of the time. right? And then other people consider work-life balance as being I'm going to work 90% of the time and and do whatever I want. 10% of the time, but I think certainly in general over over the over the population, you had people who were spending more time not being productive and less time being productive. And so, how does that affect our industry? Um, what I've noticed anecdotally within our salons is, um, of, of course, um, the people who um, uh, you know, some percentage of people got right back to it and started, um, uh, being very, very productive again. But I would say there was a higher percentage of people who were simply going to work less and and they're able to work less, you know, at Salon Republic when they they work as an independent, the, nobody is telling them to work more. Um, so they can. And, um, I, I've never seen so many hairdressers on vacation during that period of time, um, I know that, you know, my hairdresser went from working five days a week to working three days a week, and um, many of them uh, increased their prices in order to accommodate for this. Um, And, and by the way, I think that's phenomenal. If you can increase your prices to the extent that you can work less to get a better um, balance of work and life then that's phenomenal it's it, that's a smart business model actually. that's a smart yeah absolutely that's if that's what you want to do 100% uh, phenomenal um and so that's what i saw a lot of now it i i think some of that is reverting to a normal balance over the last you know year let's call it slowly but surely very gradually um I'm seeing less vacations. I mean, we, I had, I know some people who are spending a week, a month on vacation, you know, and I've never seen that in 22 years or 20 years pre pandemic, never seen that. Right. And all of a sudden, like this person is on vacation 25% of the time. And of course I'm like, I'd like to be on vacation 25% of the time, but you know, that's just not my nature to, to do that. Um, but people were able to do it, so good on them. So th- that's basically what what I'm seeing now is kind of a slow, gradual reversion to um, kind of a normal type of, of work-life balance, although not close to back to where we were in terms of, of that pro-work balance that existed pre-pandemic.
0: Hey, I just wanted to pop in to tell you something. Don't worry, we're gonna get back to this awesome episode in just a second. Now, if this sounds like you, listen up. You have a team, you love your team, but you're sick of wondering why and wishing your team would make their sales targets. You want them to be smashing sales because it shows that they're actually looking after their clients really well. Like imagine if you could have a way to make more from the clients that you already have, increase sales without spending more on advertising. Well, it's totally possible and I want to help you. And I want to help you do it with ease, in a classy way. No hard and dirty sales tricks here. Ways to serve your clients, make more, because everybody wins. The team, the client, and of course, you, the business owner. Now, if you want to find out more, just DM me uh, and let's chat. I'll make a plan for you. I'm also going to leave a link for you on the show notes of this episode. All right. Let's get back to the episode. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. We're here in New Zealand and Australia, we're a little behind uh, in terms of we weren't as closed as, uh, as long. Uh, our, company, uh, our company, our country was shut down for a long time, so we, we couldn't travel. And so now that the um, floodgates have opened, we're still dealing with sickness and people off. And so we're kind of at a different phase. Um, yeah, but it's sickness based rather than I'm on holiday based. But this oh. is the challenge now, I think, not only for those that are trying to build teams, but also for clients. This is not the availability, the price has gone up, nobody right. wants to work late nights and Saturdays. Um, I, I wonder what, uh, what is the future for the experience for the client when we want this work life work-life balance, but actually clients still need us to right be available. Is this
1: right. something that you're challenged with or experiencing? Absolutely. hundred percent. The, the, the client experience I think has suffered tremendously mm-hmm. on again, on average, right? I don't want your listeners. Cause sometimes my listeners get mad at me if I make some blanket statement, right? Of course, there's always exceptions. I'm just more so than before. I think on average, the, the, the uh, customer's experience has suffered, um, and I'm, I see it within my, my own scenario. My hairdresser, um, he makes his schedule available for three days every three weeks, okay? My, my wife, who goes to a few different hairdressers, she has trouble getting in to an appointment. Now, that's my wife, right? Who, who has access to thousands of beauty professionals, right? I can only imagine what it's like for the normal person um, she has trouble getting in because the hours have been reduced. And of course, yes, prices uh, have gone up. Uh, I've been strongly encouraging um, you know, our beauty professionals at Salon Republic, as well as all of our listeners in the English speaking world. And we have listeners in Australia as well. Uh, I've been strongly encouraging all beauty professionals to raise their price because we have this thing called inflation, which is, hasn't been this high in 40 years in the United States. And I know it's not just in the United States, it's all over the world. And I don't want our beauty professionals to get uh, left behind in terms of their financial wherewithal. So I've been strongly encouraging them to raise their prices. And, you know, maybe that has been also a a factor in in a beauty professional um, reducing the number of hours they work. Maybe they realize, well, I I raised my price and none of my clients left. In fact, people are still calling me and I don't have to work as much, you know. but but yeah, I know you guys were shut down for a long period of time there, and uh, and it's interesting to hear about how it's affected you.
0: Yeah, for sure. And now the fallout for um, the client experience, um, um, just people to serve the clients. Yeah. So I think in a way it's actually lifted and raised the industry. And before I know that it was, um, you know, just a hairdresser or um, it wasn't necessarily an industry that people wanted to get into or wanted their children to get into. But I think it's given people a new perspective that actually this has raised um, the, the, the view of how we're seen as professionals. Would you agree?
1: I, I would totally agree. Totally agree. You know, in the depths of the closures and the quarantines uh, here, just as where you are, um, you know, ha- hairdresser, a, a each hairdresser who has a book of business was getting hit up by at least you know a decent percentage of their clients to who were saying hey you know how can we make this happen i know we can't go to the salon but you know could you please come to my house i'm willing to pay you more sneak money
0: in my
1: back door yeah sneak in my back door you know work illegally etc um you know and so i i think that uh, you know f- from a standpoint of you know what, what is the term just, you know, self uh, identity, self-worth. I, I think, mm-hmm. I think absolutely from a standpoint mm-hmm. of self-worth, I think, I think most hairdressers um, recognized a great deal, how valuable they are to their clients. And, and a lot of clients of course realize that maybe they didn't care too much before, but now they care a lot because look at the roots, you know, look at my greasy, oily, stringy yeah. hair, you know, that's now misshapen because I haven't gotten a cut in three months or whatever. I know a lot of guys who just look ridiculous during that period of time. And so a lot of my friends were hitting me up for anybody who would go to their house. And of course, my response was, well, that's illegal. So I'm not going (laughs) to I'm not going to do that. But um, so I absolutely think that that was part of it. And and uh, hopefully we have some residual kind of benefit from that going forward.
0: I would say so. Um, what what do you think? what do we what what can we expect moving into the future for our industry um, on the back of this? because I feel like we're in a new and emergence phase now. Where do we think the industry is going or what opportunity opportunity do we have to shape the future? What are your thoughts, Eric?
1: You know i I think the industry is um, if there was anything that we learned, it was that we're extremely resilient. You know, the, the services that we offer, um, the value that we bring to our markets and our populations um, are, are, are extremely valuable and, and thus very, very resilient um, to any sort of disruption. Um, so that has been laid bare and made clear. I think moving forward more broadly in a macro sense, I think there's a lot of tailwinds to to what we do. Look, there's, you know, appearance um, is more important now than it was 50 years ago, uh, in my my opinion. You know, I I read somewhere the other day, the average um, Gen Xer or Gen Zer, frankly, I got them all confused. The, the, the youngest, younger, you know, the TikTok, you know, kind of the latter Instagram and now TikTok generation, they're going to take 36,000 selfies in their lifetime. So they very, very much care how they look. And we are the industry that helps them look better. So, um, you know, the technology is helping our industry. It's making it easier. So the, it's making the uh, client experience more seamless with booking apps or, um, the, you know, whether it's um, easier to find new looks. Um, the product manufacturers have done a, fa- a fantastic job making uh, transitions to new looks easier. You know, Olaplex, of course, did a a great job of that 2014, 2015, and has been doing it through the years. You know, now, of course, we have Olaplex competitors in K-18 and others who are making kind of more dramatic transitions possible. Um, So, you know, my level one uh, Asian girlfriend uh, can now get to a level nine, you know, without spending five grand and taking six months. Um, things like that are very good uh, for the industry and uh, i always like to say you know frankly one of the main things that i said when i decided to get into in this industry i said don't bet don't bet against vanity i will never bet against a a person's desire to look good and so that's going to be a tailwind in our industry for a very very long time yeah i, I
0: love that I, I really agree and i think it's one of the things that are- future-proof, I think, about the um, the work-life balance and the ability to order everything online and have it delivered. Um, I know in my household, I have teenagers, and um, packages at the front door are, are an everyday occurrence. Yeah. And it's quite commonplace, whether it's the food or their latest gadget. Um, but going to the salon for an experience is one of those things that we can never take that away. Um, it's, we have to leave the house. We want to look good. And so uh, I think
1: the, the future is bright for sure. You yeah, know that the 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 technologists have tried to develop computers yes. to cut our hair, or to yes. color our hair, <laughs> and and of course there's the Flowbee. Uh, did you guys have the Flowbee down under? No. Okay. No. Well, well, if so anyone. Well, yeah. if any of your listeners care enough, go online and just search for Floby. And I, I'm not even sure how to spell it. It's probably F-L-O-W-B-I or B-Y or something like that. Floby. And the Flowbee is essentially a vacuum cleaner with, <laughs> yes. w- you know what I'm talking about? And, yeah. and, it, and it's, it has an end on it and um, almost it like measures, a- you know,
0: Measures the, the length. Is right. Around kind of thing. Yeah. Right.
1: And cuts the hair. And so, um, you know, the Floby came out decades ago and, and this is a joke. And then I now, and then see glimpses of people trying to solve this problem with robots and such, but I don't think that it's, it's ever going to happen. Um, so I, I, yeah, future proof or technology proof there there's, you know, the, 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 um, the enduring uh, value of vanity, and et cetera. Those are all things that are going to be very, very good for our industry for a long time.
0: Vanity and, and human connection and touch, I think. I think that's the absolutely the power for sure. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Eric, you are uh, an entrepreneur business owner. What is a quote, a mantra or something that keeps you super focused that you can share with all our salon owners? Sorry, I'm going to take a little time here.
1: You know, maybe this is a little pessimistic, but I think that your listeners would enjoy it. And it's very true. So so this is what I'm going to use, despite its pessimism. But... uh, have you heard of Schultz's law? I have not. Have you heard of Murphy's law? Oh, of course. <laughs> okay. So, so Schultz's law is if it can go wrong, it will go, go wrong.
0: Hold on a second. I'm sorry.
1: So I'm going to say that again. Schultz's law is if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. And, and you know, I almost want to phrase that in a positive sense. Obviously, it's overtly negative, but it's positive if you think about it in advance of things going wrong. And the, that's the value in it. And th- this was uh, one of the reasons I, I'm saying this in response to your question is because this was my mentor's favorite thing to say was was Schultz's law he said Murphy was an optimist if it can go wrong it will go wrong and so why is that positive it's positive because going back to when I was starting my business if I recognized how easy it is for things to go wrong, then I can put in extra effort to make sure that they, they go right and you know that's been a tremendous benefit to me and I think, I, I, I probably, I mean, if I thought about it, you know, and that literal, I think I probably still have that frame of mind, um, on many of the things that we deal with on a daily basis. You know, there's, when you have 2,500 beauty professionals and you have tens of thousands of clients coming in every day, things go wrong constantly. Things go wrong. Um, but if you think about it and and you expect them to to certain number of things to go wrong, then you can prepare for them. And so when they do go wrong, they don't kill you.
0: Yeah. I love that. It's, um, it's kind of like prepare for the worst, expect the best. Yeah. Um, But you have to be, uh, a realist about things will go wrong.
1: Hold on. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to maybe throw out a better word. Hope for the best. Don't expect the best. I I don't think you meant expect the best hope for the best. (laughs) Prepare for the worst.
0: Yeah, for sure. <laughs>
1: and and um, it, defi- it definitely takes more effort to do that. But I think this is one of the differentiators between people who do well over time in their lives and people who don't.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. Although I've never looked at it that perspective. I think that's great.
1: Thank
0: you. Um, Eric, what is um, a book you've read recently, maybe a podcast or someone that you found to follow that you think all salon owners should get their hands on? years on, other
1: than your podcast, of course. Well, look, I mean, my favorite book is Good to Great. And Good to Great is a very well-known business book. Um, you know, it really is, if we're talking about salon owners, then it's very appropriate. If we're talking about just beauty professionals working behind the chair, maybe not as important. Still, certainly anybody who likes business and anyone who's working behind the chair is in business, of course. Um, but salon owners particularly will, will like this one. Um, have you read it?
0: I have. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, it, it continues to be one of my favorites. I read a lot of Jim Collins books. Um, and, and this one, I still just I can't get enough of it. It is so good. Um, Well, one of the things just to give the listeners who aren't familiar with it, some idea of what it is. uh, One of the things, well, essentially what they do is they spent like, I don't know, I could be wrong here, but some like 10 years, Jim Collins, who's a, I think he's a business professor or somebody like that. And he and his team of several people um, spent 10 plus years researching companies that of course got better over time, got great over time. And um, they and uh, they compared those with companies that failed over time. And they tried to figure out what the difference was. And a lot of the findings, a lot of the conclusions were not what you'd think. And for example, for, for the leaders who were able to take their companies from good to great uh, were not the swashbuckling, high-profile, um, you know, super highly paid, um, publicity loving types of leaders, they were the ones that were more modest, more quiet, more um, all the qualities that they talk about in the the book. So I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, It's a fantastic analytical um, work on what it is to be really good. And and I think one of the reasons why I like it so much is because it's antithetical to a lot of the things that people think being successful is. You know, mostly fed by pop culture and, you know, these stupid Instagram accounts with the with the slick guy who's always getting on and off of his quote-unquote private jet and all this other bullshit. It's just it's not that, you know, it's not that. Um, so anyway, good to great.
0: Great. Good recommendation. I'll put the, uh, the link to that in the show notes of this episode. Eric, uh, I know those listening uh, want to stalk you, find you. Where can we find you?
1: Best place is Instagram, love Eric Taylor, Eric with a C. And uh, I have a weekly podcast show called The Hair Game Podcast. And uh, five years running and haven't went, missed a week in about four and a half of those years. Uh, the, the first six months, I wasn't sure if the plane was going to get off the runway. And then <laughs> since, since then, um, we've been very consistent and um, doing, try, trying to do a better and better job every week. So uh, that's called the Hair Game Podcast, available everywhere, of course. Um, my company is called Salon Republic. Uh, We're primarily in the Western United States. Uh, Salon Republic has an Instagram account. Uh, The hairstylist might appreciate, you know, the type of content that we put up there. And uh, I'm also the chair of the Professional Beauty Federation. This was the organization that I I mentioned at the top of our episode here um, that sued Newsom. Um, They asked me to chair the organization uh, after the COVID period. So I said, yes, uh, thank you very much. That's uh, an amazing honor. So I'm the chair of the Professional Beauty Federation of California now. Um, and I think that's uh pro I, I should totally know the Instagram doesn't matter. You can see it on my uh, on my Instagram. Love Eric Taylor.
0: Amazing. I um, appreciate your insights, your thoughts. Uh, words of wisdom today, Eric. Uh, thanks for joining thank
1: us. Thank you. Thank you, Larissa. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: And that's a wrap, Eric. Thank you so much for joining me on the Owners Collective podcast. Loved having a chat with you and discussing industry insights. Trying to keep up with the industry changes is super overwhelming for anyone, let alone business owners. That's why I highly recommend that you join my profitable and successful salon owners Facebook group if you haven't already. Come. It's a place where you can discover industry changes and secrets that may affect your salon now and into the future. It's also a great place to connect with like-minded people and ask all of your burning questions that you have around growing a successful and profitable salon i'll leave the link in the show notes of this episode please come say hey otherwise i'll connect with you next week on another episode of the salon owners collective podcast ciao for now